Well, it's the first time I've said this on a Thursday. Are you ready for good talk? And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. And it is Thursday, but it is good talk. Start Friday, tomorrow, good Friday. So we decided to move up, good talk, delay your turn for next week. And uh, good talk if you miss it today it will be around and repeat on uh, on friday so it'll still be available to you all right enough explanations although i guess i can give one more i'm in scotland Chantel's in montreal bruce is in ottawa it's national tartan day i'm wearing my tartan right very impressive i didn't know it was national tartan day until i picked up my phone this morning and very fetching we were we were thinking we were, we were going to see some legs. Here. It's gonna yeah, it's gonna change the whole flow of the letters that you get next week. But uh, yeah, I mean, so, so you're wondering whether I'm wearing what, a kilt, are you? No, of course I am. No, I'm not. <laughs> I, well, no, Bruce doesn't want to see that early in the morning. <laughs> you'll be you'll be happy to know that I was, or not happy to know, I was. Uh, in a little town called Lerg, which is kind of inland a little bit from uh, where I am on the North Sea coast here. And they have a great little store there that sells, um, you know, Scottish clothes. And they had a rack of kilts. And I was, you know, I was tempted until I looked at the price. And this was in the sale area. Kilts are really expensive, just in case you were wondering. So I put that expenditure off for now. I'll, I'll work at saving up for a kilt for the future. Now we know he's also cheap. <laughs> hey, Sales <laughs> section, too pricey. I'll just get the scarf. Can you cut it out of the kilt so I can say I got a piece We're, of it? Yeah, right. Exactly. When you went in the store, did you say, show me your Scottish clothes? Because I think they just think of them as clothes, right? <laughs> <laughs> they do. They have great stuff. They, you know, like, it's a great little store. I it know is. It well. You know that store. Um, okay, here's discussion topic number one, which I, I would like to spend some time on. I we, I think we deal, as far back as I can remember, like every 10 years, we kind of have this discussion. I think the first time I ever heard it before your times was when David Lewis was the leader of the NDP in the early 1970s and successfully pushed the, the government into, into doing a Petro-Canada uh, to, um, you know, keep them alive. Um, and it was the first time where there was a kind of serious thought about, you know, maybe there should be something more formal in terms of this ag- arrangement between these two parties. Anyway, it didn't go anywhere, and the, and the Liberals won a majority coming up in the next election. Then in the 80s, the 90s, the, the, the 2000s, and then again in, in the 2010s, there was this... You know, discussion sometimes, you know, in a more serious way than other times. But there's always this discussion, would it be appropriate? Would it be right? Would it make sense that the parties of the center left got together as one? Whether it was a formal merger or whether it was a coalition of some kind, would this be the smart way to deal with the um, going up against the conservatives? Now, I never got anywhere, but those, you know, the, this past year of the formal arrangement between the NDP and the Liberals on keeping the, the House sitting has made people think again, at least some people think again, would this be appropriate? Is this something we should be seriously looking at? Is it something that would be good for us as parties? Would it be something that would be good for the country? Um, so I want to have that discussion and see where your head's at on this stuff right now. Not only whether there's anything serious going on, but really whether it is an appropriate discussion to be having. Um, Chantal, why don't you start? Well, for some reason, we're not hearing Chantal. Oh, I don't have an answer for that. Is there something else I can help with? Uh Somehow we've suddenly lost your audio, Chantal. Um, Don't have. Oh, there you are. You're back. Yes, but Alexa, which is not part of my household, was <laughs> suddenly talking to me. Yeah. But uh, I do uh, not have Alexa. 
and I don't have Alexa either. At so. least you didn't think you did. <laughs> yeah. Boy, <laughs> now I'm feeling paranoid. Alexa McDonough, perhaps. No, uh, I don't know where they, Alexa came from, but nevertheless, anyways, we've got, we've got you go back. back to, let's let's to, just not keep saying the word. <laughs> Alexa, Alexa was answering your question apparently, yeah. and she did. She said she didn't have an answer for that. I do. Yes. Uh, I first, well, well it is appropriate to discuss this. Uh, there is nothing inappropriate about the notion of coalition governments. It doesn't mean we have to go there, but uh, it is not in any way, shape, or form undemocratic to consider the possibility when you take into account uh, that if that were to happen, more than 50% by far of voters would have voted for one of the partners in that coalition. It is even more democratic to have the conversation now because if all was perfect in the democratic world, parties would be open on the election campaign trail to uh, the possibility. They wouldn't say, I would never do that and then turn around and do that. So that voters voting for one or the other of the two parties would be doing so with their eyes wide open. So that's kind of the setup for why we're having this discussion. To the specifics of the situation and what has changed. And you're right, the NDP liberal uh, non-aggression pact uh, as I call it, is kind of a new territory, not because there were not implicit pacts in the past, but this one has a timeline, and I think that distinguishes it from what we saw with the Ray Peterson alliance in Ontario, formal alliance in, in the 80s, or what happened more recently in BC, and that the, its timeline extends to the end of the natural life of a government, i.e. four years. Usually, those agreements lapse after a year or two years. That was the case in Ontario, two years. Uh, it would have been the case in BC. And then you have an election. But the other factor that you did not mention that makes this uh, conversation relevant is where the Conservative Party has decided to go with the election of Pierre Poiliev, a leader who is clearly more identified to a brand of conservatism that really bears no resemblance to what used to be known as progressive conservatives uh, in this country. So you've got Justin Trudeau who has brought the liberals closer to the center left since 2015. And at the same time, you've got Pierre Poiliev, which has brought the conservatives uh, further to the right in, in the American sense of the word. Donald Trump said America is broken. <laughs> Well, who's been saying Canada's broken for the past few months? That's basically where this is going. And so it is um, increasingly difficult to see how any of the other parties could ever come to terms with the agenda of a conservative government in the House of Commons. It is also increasingly hard to imagine that we will sail from majority to majority to majority as we used to do five of the seven last elections resulted in minority governments. So at some point, we've talked merger after 2011 between the NDP and the, the Liberals. Some people ran on that platform for both parties. They were all defeated. We talked electoral reform, which was the other solution, possibly the most logical. We all know where that went to, and it's not coming back anytime soon. So I'm guessing we are increasingly edging closer the other option to approach would be, depending on the results of an election, a possible coalition government. And I say this knowing that a lot of NDP MPs are finding it rewarding to be at the table rather than sitting outside looking in. They have found the experience of this non-aggression pact and having input on a day-to-day -day basis rather than just once in a while on the confidence. So they have found this rewarding. I am convinced they would find it even more rewarding uh, if they were in the opposition or the liberals to have a seat at the cabinet table. Okay. I, I've got a number of questions on things you said, but I want to hear from Bruce first of all uh, before we get into that. Bruce? Well, of course, as is so often the case, um, I have to find some other things to say because Chantal said all the good things. Uh, I agree very much with the with the way that she assessed the situation. I do have some 
uh, kind of other points that I, <clears throat> might be, pardon me, might be worth um, adding. I think the, I, I certainly agree that this is a useful discussion and an entirely legitimate discussion. And it does, and it doesn't, saying that doesn't negate the fact that there will be partisans who hate the fact that we're even talking about it. And this sort of brings me to my first point, which is that there's, there's no problem with this idea and theory or the discussion of it at the general public level. It only ever runs into problems at partisan level, the active partisan level, because people who, you know, work in parties develop thick skins, they develop scar tissue, they developed a sense of animosity sometimes towards rivals, even rivals who share a similar ideology as between the liberals and the NDP. Uh, you can find some pretty strong feelings sometimes. Um, so there are problems uh, from a partisan standpoint in uh, a left side uh, coalescence. And there are certainly problems, as we've seen manifest in public many times, uh, if we imagine a, a right side coalescence. Um, why is it more pertinent now than it might have been at some point in the past? I think that the right is more fear-inspiring to the left than has ever been the case in my lifetime. And the left seems more infuriating to the right than has ever been the case in my time. I don't know that that's so much a function of policy as it is a function of the chemistry of the times in which we live, the way that we communicate with each other. Um, but it seems to me that uh, if ever there was a time when the left might not just decide to vote for the same party to avoid the worst outcome, but they might actually say, it's time to end the risk uh, of a conservative government. Now is a more logical time for that kind of thinking to occur than I've seen before. But the partisanship will generally get in the way, absent some leadership aspirant who has the, an uncanny ability and I don't know who that would be to kind of rally people to uh, uh, to a point of view. I think the last thing I would say is that the the math of a a party on the center, where you would take the progressive part of the conservative movement and the more conservative part of the liberals, um, has a bigger potential market than a party that groups the liberals and the NDP. Um, maybe by 10 points, maybe 15 points in English Canada. The math depends on in, in Quebec on exactly what that kind of looks like. And, and, and BQ obviously represents a bit of a challenge there. But both have potentially access to pretty big pools uh, of voters. So there's nothing in the math of public opinion that says don't consider this. There's a lot in the chemistry of partisanship that gets in the way of people actually moving towards the the idea. Okay, let me uh, let me ask uh, those couple of questions that were prompted by things that uh, Chantal said, but also what what you just said as well. And also, I'll deal first of all with the with the numbers on this. Making assumptions is always dangerous, as, as we all know about uh, you know how many people could be attracted to such an idea. Uh, Chantal, you tossed out a, a number that's sort of somewhere approaching. 50%. Uh, no, no, actually, no, I was talking about uh, the, the the percentage of voters that would have supported presumably the NDP and, and the Liberals, and Bruce can correct me if, I, if I'm wrong, but it, it's not 50% plus, percent plus one. It could be closer to 60% or more. But is that is that not operating under the assumption that all those liberal voters are going to stay with the liberals? No. You, so I think that that's a good question. And I think you can't sort of pin people down to uh, a hard decision on a theoretical idea. So all you can do is sort of ask the question, is this something that you would lean towards or might be open to or not be open to? And so I measure the uh, size of wouldn't consider it and consider it on the the center version of a progressive conservatives and conservative liberals is about 80% in English Canada anyway, and is about 65% to Chantel's point if we look at that left side option. So there's a lot of distance between those numbers and what would you get in an election. However, um, 
people have to vote for somebody. And if those become the options on the table, then, you know, people are expressing a degree of comfort, which is typically more centrist. But there's no question that there is, if the choice is between right and left, the balance tilts more towards the left in Canada, the progressive. Let's be clear here. Uh, What we're talking about, or at least what I'm talking about, is not an electoral coalition, i.e. you only run a liberal uh, or a new Democrat uh, in every writing. Uh, What I'm talking about is an after-the-fact, in the same way as this pact between the NDP and the liberals, an after-the-fact arrangement that would go a bit further than the current arrangement that we've seen. That being said, um, I find it hard to believe that the liberals and the NDP can go in an election in a year, 18 months, and tell Canadians it's terrible to think about coalitions and know they wouldn't ever consider it, given what they've just done for the past two years. That Their uh, arrangement kills their capacity to pretend that the liberals are not acceptable to the new Democrats or the new Democrats are too extreme or too irresponsible to be part of a government. The point I wanted to make, which is a bit out of left field, is an argument that you heard a lot in the past was uh, that the liberals in particular would not be open to any of those considerations because the NDP and the liberals fight each other provincially. And that was true for a long, long time. But have you seen what's happening to the liberals provincially? Right. Have you seen what happened to the liberals, the alternative to the government in PEI forever in Monday's election? They came out of it. And they were ahead of the Green Party. They won three seats and the Greens won two. That kind of tells you something about a brand in trouble. The Saskatchewan liberals are dropping the name. The BC liberals have dropped the name. Why? Because when they took it, it was a brand that could bring people. Now they would rather get rid of the brand. Let's not get into what's happening to the Ontario and the Quebec liberals. So the argument that um, provincially uh, your partisans are so numerous that you wouldn't consider dealing with the NDP or vice versa because uh, they are two rivals is increasingly less and less of a consideration. And as Bruce says, you've got to vote for somebody. You wanted to make a point here, Bruce? Yeah, I, I did. I, I thought Chantal um, made a really interesting point saying that, you know, parties can't pretend that they won't cooperate uh, in the next election because everybody who's paid any attention mm-hmm. knows that there has been uh, a working cooperative agreement, which, you know, people in politics tend to bristle if you say it's effectively a coalition, uh, but they should stop bristling because it, it functions kind of like the... Uh, the idea does, but the other ver- the other thing that I see in that is that if partisans um, have in the past taken comfort against this idea by saying the public would never go for it, the evidence of the last couple of years is completely the opposite. That people have frustrations with the government, and uh, certainly the conservatives at a political level make the case that this is, uh, you know, the work of the devil, these two parties combining together. But there's very little evidence that the public has been uncomfortable uh, with that. In fact, uh, the latest numbers I've been gathering now on the budget show that, you know, 28 percent say it's a bad budget. Most people say it's a reasonable budget in the circumstances. And that's the mindset generally that I've seen over the years among Canadians is that they don't really get pulled too much towards these partisan edges. They generally are looking for more centrist, pragmatic policies. And what they have tended to see, most of them, um, obviously not conservative voters, uh, is a government that has pursued some ideas that they like, probably spent more money than they wanted, uh, but um isn't offensive as a way of governing, I guess is, is what I'm trying to say. All right. There's more to ask on this, and I'm going to ask it, but we're going to take our first break. Back right after this. And welcome back. You're listening to a Good Talk Special Thursday edition as we uh, get in here the day before Good Friday. 
this edition episode of Good Talk, though, will be uh, repeated through the weekend. So you can find it, of course, on your podcast platform or you can find it on SiriusXM. Uh, you can also see it on your or our YouTube channel. Uh, and more and more people are, are taking that option because they heard it was National Tartan Day and they love looking at my tartan scarf. Scottish clothes. That's what they like. <laughs> don't, 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 don't go to the, the pictures of hoping to see legs. You won't. <laughs> Not yet. We're working on that. Okay, here's my second question. It was prompted by one of your, um, well, your initial answer, uh, Chantel, um, which I was not aware of, so I'd like to hear a little more about. You talked about how some members of the NDP have really uh, felt like they're a part of this deal, that they have a seat at the table, and I guess sort of watching from a distance, you just sort of get, you, you hear uh, Jagmeet Singh talking about on, on special days, budget days, and days like that about we like, we don't like. But there's no no sense, at least that I've had, that they're actually at the table, so to speak, in some of these discussions. What do you know? What can you share with us on that? Okay, so uh, to be fair, it's not obvious, uh, even when you look up close, as I do. Uh, and I only realized it when I, I listened and watched and read some of the reports on the one-year anniversary of how the parties were assessing uh, how the arrangement had worked. And as you know, there, the, the, the basic rule of this deal is no surprises. And it almost founded on what was the biggest unpleasant surprise from the standpoint of the arrangement, which were those amendments that suddenly appeared on the gun control legislation and which resulted in uh, the NDP ending up on the receiving end of a lot of uh, of a backlash from uh, hunting circles in in areas like Timmins, for instance, where uh, the NDP has a seat and where there are plenty of uh, people who go hunting and who did not like those amendments. To avoid surprises, you can't just say, I'm not going to surprise you. You have to keep, you have to open up uh, uh, to others and you have to, to have the discussion before it becomes public. So they, are, they have set up a process that has um, people from the PMO and people from uh, Singh's office, but also MPs uh, and ministers, MPs on the NDP side that are part of the shadow cabinet, presumably uh, of Jagmeet Singh, but also members of cabinet uh, on the other side of the table. And they hash out uh, issues and iron out possible kinks before bad things happen in public and lines get drawn and paint gets expended and then nobody wants to walk over that that paint really important, of course, has been to not embarrass Jagmeet Singh himself, who has to sell this uh, agreement and what happens with it to his own party and to, to his own members and to many constituencies on the left. So he's got to have something to show for what he's doing. But what I, I you know, we always talk about things in strategic terms. It allows the liberals to push off an election. The NDP is no money, so uh, it allows them to escape the inevitable day when bad things will happen to them, etc. But we forget that uh, it is also part and parcel of the agreement that it means that parliament functions differently for a group of opposition MPs who have a lot of opposition experience. And it's in reading their comments about how they felt that their input mattered, uh, that they had a say on things, that I realized that, yes, there are reasons for New Democrats to be nervous about this arrangement, what, uh, what voters will make of it afterwards. Pierre Poiliev making a play for blue-collar votes, which the NDP needs in many areas to, to, to sustain its caucus. But in the day-to-day work-life satisfaction uh, thing, a number of NDP MPs feel like they're bringing home things. They can go home, especially after this budget, and say this dental care program, which is really popular based on the early polls, we we did this. It's been a long time since the NDP has been able to say, we got Petro-Canada done, or we were the party of Medicare. And it's one thing to win small victories in the bubble where you say, well, the NDP got what it wanted on 
gun control, the amendments were withdrawn. Nobody cares about that in the larger world, the day-to-day battles. But it's another thing to be able to say, we made this arrangement and we forced the liberals to do something uh, that we can claim as our legacy, even if we don't form government. Uh, and I think that's made a difference to, to the way many new Democrats look at this arrangement. Uh, and the the usefulness of maybe keeping it going for a while, because they can still say to their constituents, we are getting things, real things for real people out of this deal. But it also uh, underlines your other point, too, that the deeper into it they get, the harder it is to campaign against it when eventually they may have to. But that, that's going to be my next question. But first, I know Bruce wants to say something. Yeah, I just wanted just... to pick up one thing. I mean, one of the ways to observe Ottawa sometimes is to is to challenge yourself to think, well, what's what music am I not hearing that I used to hear? What things that used to be normal don't seem to be part of the mix. And Chantal touched on the point that I, I, has occurred to me, which is you really don't hear liberals criticizing New Democrats. Um, and it's not because they don't have strong feelings. Uh, they've I've always heard a lot of them. And, and sometimes you'll talk to liberal caucus members who'll say, the people that I get the most frustrated with, and I'm using softer language than they might, uh, are the New Democrats sometimes more than the uh, and the reason is that there's a kind of a holier than thou sense. There's a feeling like, okay, these folks think that they're morally superior to us and and they castigate us for being kind of imperfect progressives. And that's very frustrating for for liberals who, you know, most people, when they hear an argument that might feel like it has a little bit of truth to it, that's the argument that bites the hardest. And, and um so I think that's that's there. That's changed. And I think that makes it harder again at some point to reanimate that instinct to fight against the other party, because that kind of if you turn it off or turn it down, I don't know that it comes back as readily or as easily. It sort of maybe seeps away as a form of energy over time. Second thing is that both the NDP and the liberals went on tours uh, to promote the budget. That was pretty interesting. And the liberals didn't look like they were bothered at all by Jagmeet Singh uh, going around the country saying, look at what I did. Now, there's been a day when that would have resulted in some friction, some sparks flying, that kind of thing. But I didn't see any of that. It was almost as though, to Chantal's point, the liberals were going, yeah, go tell that budget and we'll figure out how to fight with each other. Uh, if and if and when we need to do that at the time or in the run-up to the next election. And the last point for me is that liberal politicians and NDP politicians share one thing in common. Typically, they want to be influential on the course of the country. It's often been more challenging for NDP politicians to feel as though they're accomplishing that goal, and they are now. There's no question that they are now, and maybe more so than at almost any time that I can I can recall. Um, liberal politicians want to be influential, but they also want to win elections. And that's not always been as uh, prominent a factor in the minds of New Democrat politicians. So that's the thing I'll be watching over the coming months um, is does the do the do the New Democrats start to become satisfied that they can be influential and focused on the winning elections, which probably takes them more towards Let's not fight with each other so much. Let's let's describe the risk that we see on the right. That's what I'll be watching for. Okay. And of course, the liberals uh, can be easygoing about the NDP selling the budget because if uh, if it comes to that, uh, and they as they usually do in every election, decide that they try to coalesce the anti-conservative vote behind them, they're going to be able to say to NDP voters, "We are the friendly." place to come to. Look at all that we accomplished with the NDP. We are a friendly haven in a possible conservative storm. So please come to us so that we can keep the big bad wolf out of our cozy little house. Uh, and so if I were a liberal, I certainly wouldn't be going saying, uh, look at those new Democrats, what they're making us do, because those NDP voters are the very voters that the liberals will need to court to fend off the conservatives 
in the next election. So in any event, everybody is finding something uh, to be happy about. I just want to go back to the point Bruce made about voters who voted liberal or a new Democrat not being terribly frustrated by the arrangement between the two parties. They are certainly no more frustrated than the average voter tends to be when a majority government is elected with 38% of the vote and then gets to do whatever it wants for four years. Uh, so voters are frustrated by election outcomes in this country, but uh, the level of frustration with the arrangement certainly is at least uh, as not higher than the normal reaction of a voter that did not vote for the party that has a majority and that now has to put up with it for four years with very little that anyone can do to hinder its policies. I feel somebody somewhere is is picking up a Sharpie and scratching out the rough outlines of a storyboard where uh, the cozy little house is threatened by the big bad wolf, and so reading too oh, many yeah, man, too but... many children's stories. Uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> I have a grandchild who's practicing a play that does involve um, little pigs and a big bad wolf. Okay, here's um, here's my final question on this, and I guess this is where the whole conversation was bound to end up. Um, the deeper you go into this. Why not go the whole nine yards or the whole nine meters or whatever the expression is these days? Um, because the picture you're painting is unlike anything we've seen before in terms of the depth of the arrangement here, uh, how the, the, the way Chantel just described it, uh, the conversations that are going on, the dialogue that's happening. Uh, the progress is being made. I'm not sure how you end up in an election campaign running against this uh, this government when you're this you, you're in in effect almost a part of the government in terms of the conversations that are going on. So why not take it the full distance, which has always been the discussion point, right, for the last 50 years? Right? Why don't they just merge? Like, forget about a coalition. Why don't they have a real merger like the, like the conservatives did? Yes, but the conservatives used to be together. And these are two uh, different families. Plus, uh, frankly, if I were a new Democrat voter, I'd like the knife at the throat approach of keeping the liberals um, in line by being able to pull out of any arrangement, including a coalition government. I certainly would find that more respectful of my um, sense of purity, <laughs> which and Bruce was alluding to from the New Democrats, then the notion of a merger. I think I, I, I don't see that either party would want to go down that road. I think we would deprive ourselves of uh, uh, different talents. There is diversity in having two parties uh, on that side of the ledger, two parties that could presumably form government. And it would be probably sad to turn them into homogenized milk. Um, yeah, a hundred years ago, they were all in the same party. Yes, but we're not going back there, right? <laughs> no, and we don't no, see and, that and it's are, exciting to have only two options on the ballot. Right. And nor, it like the conservatives you? aren't going back either. But no, I don't remember, Bruce, what it was like. Are you sure? <laughs> uh, but what's your theory on this? I mean, clearly, Chantel doesn't think it's a... It's a live option. Well, I like it's a little bit like the table games that I used to play, including with other partisans like democracy or risk or those kinds of games. Risk is the one that I remember. And actually, when I was working on the Hill way back when, and I was working for a liberal MP then, um, a few of us used to get together with conservative assistants. And and, uh, on a Saturday, that's what we would nerd out to. Um, But it, it, you know, in theory, or in a board game, you can put pieces together. You can decide that you're going to take over this country or these two things are going to work together. But in reality, these organizations aren't so ready to do that. They're built up with an awful lot of muscle memory that is about um, if the New Democrats basically saying liberals are lazy progressives or fake progressives or you know that kind of thing, and and, and we're progressives in a hurry. We're used to saying 
things that sound like liberal Tory, same old story, right? So there's a lot of uh, energy and training that is in the mindset of the NDP activists that doesn't make it easy for the, for them to say, oh, some higher ups have decided we should put these two organizations together and we should all get along. It does. It, I don't think it it works that way. The only scenario where I could imagine that happening, and I don't wish it on the country, is such a crisis that um, the fear of the right becomes something more than a reason to uh, kind of motivate your own base and turn out the vote, but to to recognize something that feels existential as a as a risk. And I don't predict that that will happen, and I don't want it to happen. But it, that circumstance, I think, would be needed in order for it uh, to happen. But I do think that we have to, and this is probably where this coalition, informal coalition question comes into play, is that every one of the last minority government scenarios, as we get closer to election day and we wonder, well, which of the two main parties or the biggest parties are going to end up with the largest number of seats? We have this question about, and would it be legitimate for the party with the second most seats to form a government? And I think public opinion is a little bit more flexible on that question than we sometimes imagine. Um, and the reason I say that is that the Conservatives have won more of the popular vote uh, a couple of times and not formed a government. And so the question of would a Pierre Polyev Conservative Party that won a handful more seats than a Justin Trudeau-led Liberal Party automatically be judged by Canadians to be deserving of forming a government? I think the efforts of the Liberals and the NDP over the last couple of years have made that a more questionable starting point. Uh, and, I, and I'm saying that without taking a hard point of view on it. I just think that we're sort of getting closer to not believing that the highest number of seats means you have to form the government or you're entitled to form the government. That proposition, by the way, was tested in real life. It's called Ontario 1985. The Conservatives won 52 seats. The Liberals won 48 seats. The Conservatives formed the government. It was defeated at the first confidence vote by a combination of New Democrats and Liberals. The Liberals became the government with the support in an alliance of the NDP led by Bob Ray for two years. And voters must have liked it because when the election, the next one came around in 87, well, David Peterson won a majority government. He wasn't punished for having led an illegitimate government. Uh, the, there is a, an example along the same lines in BC more recently uh, with the Green Party and, and the NDP. And what happened at the first election after that experience, Mr. Horgan, who was then the premier and the leader, won a majority. So in two of Canada's larger provinces, the evidence has been that voters do not think that such arrangements are illegitimate. Now, to go back to the coalition or a pact or whatever, it satisfies the most primal need of both the NDP and the Liberals. In the case of the NDP influence, which has been their game for their entire history federally because they never managed to win power. And then the case of power. So you're giving each uh, of their members some the thing they crave most, which is a lot easier than telling all those members your, your party is suddenly going to disappear and become some other creature with people that you have never wanted to spend much time with because uh, the liberals have better parties or the new Democrats are too pure. So uh, I, I don't see how any NDP or liberal leader could think that it's a better option to go to his or her members and say, oh, we're just going to merge here uh, because they were never together. And I know about 100 years ago, but the NDP was uh, created. We are now talking about half a century and more. So it's not a new kid on the block here. Uh, she never lets me get away with anything. Um, Sometimes, uh, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. your absence of a kilt. Look, everybody loves it when we tease you. That's the only reason I know, we do. But this, is called, this is called good talk. It's not called 
Let's trash the host again it's, this week. It's not trashing. <laughs> it's not trashing. Yeah, but we can't, you know, I'm yeah, yeah. slightly I younger, know. so I can't remember what happened 100 <laughs> years ago. Um, I, I, I loved your, the, the Peterson story of what happened in 85, and and it, it keeps getting interesting, right? Because eventually Peterson loses, and who does he lose to? He loses to Bob Ray. And the conservatives are, you know, shut out again, as they were for, what, 10 or Ten or twelve years, which was, you know, considering they'd been in power for more than forty years at that point, that was uh, uninterrupted power. Uninterrupted. Okay, we'll take our last break. We'll be uh, right back after this. And welcome back. We're into the uh, final segment of this week's. Good talk. Chantel is in Montreal. Bruce is in Ottawa. Uh, we're going to leave that fascinating discussion because we've exhausted it, I think, for now, anyway. Uh, and we're going to have a few words in our uh, remaining few minutes uh, about the latest situation in Alberta. Danielle Smith, the Premier, has announced she's going to sue the CBC over its coverage of her discussions with somebody who was being charged with a criminal offense around the um, convoy situation. She talked to this person for about 11 minutes. It's a fascinating conversation. We've talked about it uh, before and what was said, what wasn't said. Um, But uh, Danielle Smith says the CBC has gone beyond um, uh, reality of what was actually said in the conversation and is saying things about her that she feels are uh, are worthy of taking to court. Now, that's not all she said. She says now that she won't answer any questions about that whole incident while it's before the courts. So there are lots of people trying to ask questions about it, not just the CBC. The opposition is trying to ask questions. All the other media organizations are trying to ask questions. Um, it's being commented on by... Uh, um, you know, political science professors, analysts from all kinds of different places. But she's not going to take any questions and use that excuse of it's before the courts. I don't have to talk about this. And they're on the verge of an election campaign where one assumes this could possibly be an issue. Um, who wants to go first? Bruce looks like he's pawing at the ground here on this one. Go for it. Well, I'm really fascinated by that. Uh, I, I'm fascinated by how this Alberta election will turn out. I think it's one of the most consequential elections that we've seen in that province in a long time, and in part because I think that the province's a population, which generally does tend to want conservative governments, also wants um, a different style, or many voters who have habitually voted conservative in the past have been signaling in the last few elections that they want a different brand of conservative uh, than people in rural Alberta perhaps want. And so Danielle Smith, I think, has found herself in an extremely uncomfortable situation, which I think she's handled regularly quite poorly. Um, The uncomfortable situation is that she arrived in that position as leader and premier, uh, having built a reputation for being a bit of a firebrand for for uh, championing ideas that seemed outside the mainstream a little bit, or if not the mainstream of the Conservative Party in Alberta, the mainstream public opinion. And so she's had to walk some of those back, and that creates some frustrations within her own party. And, and so I think she's got a difficult problem um, maintaining party unity, and it's a problem that she has probably exacerbated rather than Um, reduced over time. But what is fascinating to me about her attempt to deal with this latest, really quite, I don't know if shocking is the right word, but it's certainly very disturbing and disappointing that somebody in that office would be trying to have the conversations that she's and she was trying to have about somebody who was involved in some activity that uh, really doesn't hold up to very much scrutiny. But she's got this idea that if she says, uh, because not because I'm suing the CBC, but because I'm contemplating suing the CBC. I contemplate lots of things every day, but 
please if, don't. If my wife said to me, I want to ask you about this thing that you don't want to talk to me about. And I said, well, you know what? I'm contemplating not answering that question. <laughs> that wouldn't work very well. I don't understand the logic other than I'm so desperately interested in not having my election campaign be derailed every day by this. Uh, so I'm going to try this Hail Mary thing. And I don't think it's going to work. I understand those who, and you're going to get letters, and I'm going to get comments in the in the Twitter feed that say, "Ah, yeah, you know, the news cycle always turns, and people will forget this, and it, this ploy will work, and maybe it will, maybe it will." But contemplating a lawsuit against the CBC for a story that seemed to be the thing that she said she did. And that the tape clearly showed that she did. I I find it so ham-fisted and so poorly thought out that it's kind of remarkable as a as a measure of political strategy in and of itself. So that's my that's my take on it. Yeah, you know, it's a bad strategy when a government tries to get itself uh, off the hook uh, uh, and manages to make the story go on for longer. So here we are in week two of talking about this issue when we should, uh, based on what the news cycle normally does, have moved on to other issues. But because of this, um, of the threat of a lawsuit, if the threat of a lawsuit was cause for any serious media to drop a story, uh, we would basically be printing out press releases every day because that's just about the kind of story that does not ever get the threat of a lawsuit. Uh, second, to say I won't comment on this while it's before the courts. Well, it's not before the courts, and apparently it won't be anytime soon. So what does that make of that excuse? And since um, the premier has developed this new respect for the rule of law and the distance between the state and, and the courts, um, then what was she doing on the phone with this individual talking about talking to her prosecutors about things that would have happened in the courts uh, she wanted to prevent apparently so when you put all that together uh, one it makes the story go on longer two i suspect there will be journalists who will make it a point to ask her every single day of the election campaign if she has now decided to um once and for all, clear the air on that conversation, which everyone I suspect now in Alberta has heard. And you can think she was just doing her job, being okay with the constituent or breaching uh, and stepping over a serious line. But basically, I don't think this does anything except prolong the, the agony of a story that the conservatives do not want to get an election with. And by the way, for those who don't keep that calendar, the election is on May 29th, so a month and a half from now. I, I got to say, you know, sometimes the hardest thing for for anyone really is to say, like, I'm sorry, I screwed up. It seems especially hard for uh, for politicians to say that. But I look at this one and I think, you know, like, what's the worst that could happen if she just said, look, you know what? I screwed up. I shouldn't have made that call. I certainly shouldn't have talked um, uh, the way I talked in that conversation. Um, you know, some would say, oh, well, there's precedent here. Uh, she has to resign because there have been, you know, ministers, federal ministers. Didn't Jean Charest resign over calling a judge, right? Yeah, he, he called a judge, though. Yeah, a little different. Um, but I don't understand why... Well, I think there's a couple of possible answers to it, Peter. I think that one is that her time in office, as short as it has been, has been marked by a series of fumbles and stumbles. It has not looked like um, she was really ready for this role or that she made decisions in a thoughtful way. And and so the number of times where she has put herself in a situation uh, by her own hand, that embarrassed the government and uh, made her seem kind of awkward and, and ill-prepared is is part of what she's trying to avoid. She doesn't want to have another situation where people will say she made a mistake. She stumbled and made a mistake. The second reason is that I think it was in the late fall when the CBC was saying, well, we have evidence that she did try to put pressure on these prosecutors and there are emails to that effect. And you remember that the 
the defense of the premier's office then we're going to examine for any emails that might have said something like this and we're going to get back to you and they went and examined and they said we didn't find any this never happened and they were so aggressive in their defense i remember we probably talked about it that they went further than I would because it felt to me from the CBC story that whatever, whether there were emails or whether there was conversations, there was probably something otherwise the CBC wouldn't have said, we're standing by our story at the time. And if you're in the premier's office and you're doing strategy around this at that point, you might stop short of saying, not only are we going to let this issue die because we've said there's nothing there, we're going to push back further. So she's now got that as part of the background. That's a that's a challenge for her. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna leave it at that uh, for this week. Fascinating um, conversation as always on Good Talk. I've enjoyed it. Uh, I want to briefly just correct something that I said yesterday. Um, we were having this conversation around the 60 Minutes piece, the Leslie Stahl piece on uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and. In uh, in my explanation of what could have happened, I talked about Edward R. Murrow and the classic confrontation with Joe McCarthy. I got a couple of things a little mixed up in that in that um, in that description. Um, one, he really did basically disemboweled was the way people talk about it. Uh, McCarthy in in the interview he did with him, but he didn't ex- he didn't use that phrase. Um, have you no shame? First of all, the phrase wasn't have you no shame, it was have you no decency. And second of all, it wasn't said by Edward R. Morrow. It was said later in a Senate committee hearing. And a number of sharp-eyed listeners uh, and, and viewers uh, noticed that and sent in uh, comments for me to get it right, Mansbridge. So uh, that's my attempt at getting it right. So there you go on that. Um, thank you, Chantel. Thank you, Bruce. Another good day. Enjoy your weekend. Get your tartan yeah, Well, we're your tartan in this day. place. We're mostly trying to get hydropower. Uh, yeah, well, good luck on that. That's, uh, that's no fun. Uh, all right, wrapping it up. Thanks so much to uh, both of you. We'll talk to you on uh, the bridge again on Monday. Mm-hmm.